Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. As a church, we are studying through the Gospel of Mark. Today we are in Mark chapter 6, verse 14. We're going to be studying the death of John the Baptist. Jesus tells us that John the Baptist was the greatest Old Testament prophet. And uh, I think we often misunderstand the greatness of John and the importance of John and the significance of John. But if Jesus says John the Baptist is like the greatest man out there uh, before him, then we ought to better take note of him. Incidentally, in the Gospel of Mark that we're studying, every single thing in the Gospel of Mark is all about Jesus Christ from first to last, except for one part, and that is the part we're studying this morning, which is about John the Baptist. So if Mark says, the only other person I'm willing to talk about in this Gospel is John the Baptist, then he must be a pretty important guy. John the Baptist, his job was to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. He was calling people to confess their sins, to repent of their sins, and to be baptized in the Jordan River of repentance for their sin and preparing the way for Jesus Christ. By the time we get to Mark chapter 6, where we find ourselves today, John the Baptist is actually in prison. Luke chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, tell us that John the Baptist was imprisoned shortly after the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus came out of his temptation in the wilderness. He was immediately baptized by John. You remember that at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Right after that is when John the Baptist was arrested, and so he has been in prison for about a year when we have this flashback that we're studying this morning. Now, we're going to work through this story, and we're going to look through the story uh, from the vantage point of Herod. So we're going to look at, first of all, Herod's fascination with Jesus. Then we're going to look at Herod's family background. Then we're going to look at Herod's fear, and finally, Herod's folly. So let's go ahead and begin right here with Herod's fascination with Jesus in your outlines from verses 14 through 16. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised." Let's be, start at the beginning here. It says, when Herod heard of it. What is the it that Herod has heard of? And that connects us with what we were studying last week. Last week, we saw that Jesus sent out his apostles. He delegated his authority to them, sent them out two by two. And now the apostles were able to heal the sick, uh, raise the dead, and cast out demons. Prior to this, we know that Jesus was essentially running like a one-man band, and he was the only one who was preaching the gospel and healing the sick and raising the dead. But now that he has delegated that authority, you have a seven-fold impact, because you have Jesus still doing that, healing the sick and raising the dead, plus six groups of two of his apostles all spread out throughout that region, healing the sick, raising the dead, um, 
preaching the gospel message. So we have a gospel explosion in that area. People are rising from the dead and getting healed all over the place. Now, news of this reaches Herod. You may wonder, why didn't Herod know about this before? Was he just ignorant? Possibly. Herod, I'm sure, knew about uh, Jesus and John the Baptist, but really hadn't paid much attention to it. Herod did tend to spend a lot of time in the city of Tiberias. Jews avoided the city of Tiberias completely. Tiberias was actually built on a graveyard. So the Jews considered it unholy ground, so they kept away from it. So that's maybe why Herod didn't have any idea, because he's in Tiberias most of the time. Also, it could have been because he's simply aloof to the goings-on and happenings amongst his people, which, quite honestly, I think he's just an inept ruler. As you're going to see in a few minutes, uh, he is a very inept ruler, so I think he just didn't know what was going on. But at this point, he can't help but know all this news because it's coming from every quarter, people talking about the name of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and the healings, and the people that are having demons cast out because of Jesus. And there are three explanations going around. Some people think that this person must be Elijah, and in the books of in the book of Malachi, it closes with saying that a prophet like Elijah will come to repair the way for the Messiah. So some people are thinking that maybe that's what's going on. Other people think that Jesus could possibly be one of the prophets like prophets of old in the Old Testament times. The third explanation is, that's going around is that Jesus is just John the Baptist raised from the dead with miraculous powers at work in him. Herod is convinced it's number three. He's convinced that Jesus is John the Baptist, raised from the dead, come back to haunt him. Now, literally, it says here in the Greek, when he talks about this, he says, it's John whom I beheaded. The I here is in the emphatic tense in the Greek. He is very sure that it's, it's my fault that this is happening. What does this tell us? Here you have Herod as a man running around with a very guilty conscience. He um, was guilty for what he did. He was the one who killed John the Baptist. He was the one who incarcerated John the Baptist in the palace prison for a year. And he was the one also who was the one who took John the Baptist's life. And he's very guilty for what he's done. Now I think before we go any further, there's some application we can derive from this. You know, if you don't confess your sin you will be haunted by your sin. Isn't that true? You don't confess your sin, you'll be haunted by your sin. And when you have sin that just you hold inside you, it ends up being what is called cancer to your conscience. It eats you alive from the inside out. And that's what's gone on with Herod. Uh, we'll see later that John the Baptist had numerous times implored him to confess his sin, repent of his sin, because that's what John the Baptist's whole message was. Herod would not do that. He held on to his sin, held on to his pride, and now he is haunted 
by his sin, in particular his sin of taking the life of his favorite preacher, John the Baptist. Now I have to ask you, is that you? Are you somebody here who's haunted by your sin because you won't confess your sin? Are you somebody that uh, you know, when the phone rings, you jump because you're afraid that somebody's finally found you out? You can take two paths at that time. You can either do what John the Baptist was always, begging John, was always begging Herod to do, which is confess and to repent and to come clean. And ultimately, we know that if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, he makes us into new people. Or you can hold on to your sin, like Herod did. Be haunted by it for the rest of your life, and let it be the cancer that eats away at your conscience. Now, let's continue and look. We're going to go into Herod's family. When I jump into Herod's family here, this, I'm not going to give you anything out of the text of Mark. I just need to give you some secular background so you understand Herod's family line. Because this will make sense of what happens here. Luke chapter 3, verse 1, tells us that Herod's name was Herod the Tetrarch. Well, what is a Tetrarch? Literally, it means simply just a ruler of a quarter. Not like 25 cents, but a quarter of one piece. Now, Israel had been taken over by the Romans many years before, and the Romans, when they took over a country, they would set over a regional ruler over that country who then reported to them. Those regional rulers held their position of power rather lightly because if Rome didn't like you, you could be instantly, without explanation, exiled or executed which some of these regional rulers were. But in the area that you ruled, those regional rulers ruled with a complete iron fist. The Herod that we are talking about in this particular story is Herod Antipas, and he is one of these regional rulers, and he's ruling over a quarter of territory. But to understand him and his family line, we have to go back to his father, the father's name is Herod the Great. And by the way, after Herod the Great, you'll find there are many Herods talked about in the Bible and in, and in extra-biblical history. And the reason there are so many Herods running around is because Herod the Great, the original guy, really liked women, and he had ten wives. When you have ten wives, you tend to have a lot of little Herods running around, and your family tree gets very complicated. And so that's what's happened here. Let's start with Herod the Great, the father of this dynasty. Herod the Great was not a Jew, by the way. He was technically an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. He pretended to be a Jew. He tried to look Jewish, and he was given the right to rule this area of Israel that the Romans had conquered, and he ruled that area for 36 years. He was a very evil man. He was a murderous man and a very sexually deviant man. You might know Herod the Great because he is the one who built the temple in Jerusalem, which was legendary for its beauty. He didn't build it because he actually had great love for God. 
History tells us the reason he built uh, the temple and many other of his other building projects was simply to stroke his own ego on the greatness of his accomplishments. Before his death, Herod the Great's death, he was very paranoid about making sure nobody could ever contend for his throne. To tell you what this guy is like, he murdered one of his own wives. He even murdered his own children because he thought that some would be a contender to the throne. When you're murdering your own wife and children, it's a bad guy. You want to stay away from those kind of folks. History tells us he died a ghastly and painful death. Josephus writes about this, that he died of ulcerated entrails, rotting, maggot-infested organs, and bad breath. Josephus is not the medical doctor, but he, I guess he thinks bad breath could be part of the cause of your own death. But apparently it was really bad for him to note it on his death record. Now, Herod the Great, you recognize him from the Bible because he was the one that was ruling when Jesus was born. He is the Herod that the wise men went to and said, hey, we have heard that the king of the, uh, the, king of the Jews has been born. And what does Herod do? Doesn't want to accept any challenges. So he kills all the children two years old and under in Bethlehem. Just like he's willing to kill his own children, he was willing to kill Jesus. Herod the Great died, and he directed that his kingdom that he ruled over would be divided into four pieces. He chose four of his sons to be the Tetrarchs, the ruler of a fourth. Now, the other sons, they were left money, but they were not left the official bloodline of the inheritance. Let me tell you about these tetrarchs, and go ahead and put the, the graphic up there. You can see there the four sections that he divided them up into. Not uh, nicely done with geometry, but that's essentially how he divided things up. Thank you, Jeremy. There was Herod Archelaus, who was one of the tetrarchs. He lasted for a very short time. Rome officially got rid of him in 6 A.D., and from that point on, they replaced that area to be governed by a series of Roman governors, one of whom was eventually called Pontius Pilate. And you remember him. He is the one who was instrumental in Jesus Christ's death. Another one of the Tetrarchs was named Herod Philip. Now, this becomes a little confusing because there are actually two Herod Philips. One who was a Tetrarch, who was given a quarter of his territory to rule, and another who was not a Tetrarch, born from a different mother, who was just a common citizen. But I guess if you have 10 wives and they're all having your children, after a while, even your kids start to get named the same thing. Like I said, he's a very interesting fellow. Now, there's another Tetrarch named Herod Lassimus, and finally, Herod Antipas, who is the man we're studying today. So that's his messed up family background. Now let's get into Herod's fear. Herod's fear was John the Baptist. That Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead to haunt him. Why? This begins a very interesting story. Mark chapter 6 verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, 
because he had married her. Herod decided to seize John the Baptist and put him in prison. Why did he do this? It wasn't because Rome called for this to be done. It wasn't because there was an uprising and he needed to create some law and order. He arrested John and put him in prison simply because he wanted to do it. I can just picture it. John was, it says in John chapter 3 that he was baptizing in Anam Salim, which is by the Jordan River just north of the Dead Sea. He's out in the wilderness doing it, and the soldiers come up, and they arrest him. Why am I being arrested? Because Herod wants to arrest you. Did I do anything wrong? Nope. Just because Herod wants to arrest you. We don't need due process or anything. Herod gets to do what Herod wants to do. Herod arrested him in what is known as a place called Macarius. And we know this because Josephus talks about this. Go ahead and put the Macarius up there. It was actually on the top of a mountain. Uh, today, it looks like a mountain that was shaved off at the top because on the top of that mountain was where Herod kept his palace uh, fortress. It was a gorgeous and beautiful palace with thick walls. It had towers on it that rose over 200 feet into the air. You had a really great view. It was very difficult to attack. But the interesting part of this is he didn't just build up in beauty, but he built down to create a dank and fearsome dungeon beneath the palace. So while Herod was a very depraved and wicked man, he lived in absolute luxury on the top part of this fortress. While John the Baptist, the greatest man to ever live before Jesus, lived below the palace in the dark and dank dungeon for over a year. Why did he arrest John? Here begins the soap opera. I talked to one of the guys before church, and I said, this is soap opera Sunday. So here comes the soap opera part of the sermon. It all had to do with Herodias. Herodias in the text here is called his brother Philip's wife. Herodias was married to Herod Philip, and she should have stayed married to Herod Philip. Incidentally, the Herod Philip she was married to is not the Herod Philip who was the Tetrarch, ruling over territory. It was the Herod Philip who was not the Tetrarch, who was just a common, ordinary citizen. And she lived in Rome together. Now, many books will say that what happened was that um, Herod Antipas seduced Herodias into marrying him. But as I have studied this text and spent a fair amount of time into this, I think it actually goes both ways. Or if anything, Herodias is the prime mover in this, seducing him. Let me explain this to you. Herodias is, by the way, the kind of girl you want to stay away from, guys. She is very beautiful. She is legendary for her beauty. She's also extremely seductive and extremely manipulative. At the time, Herod Antipas was already married. He was married to a woman named Phacelus, who was the daughter of King Aretas, king of the Nabataeans. Now, what happened was he went, Herod Antipas went to Rome to visit his brother, Herod Philip, 
while there he noticed how incredibly beautiful Herodias was, his brother's wife. Herodias noticed that Herod Antipas was really taking an interest in her, and she decided that she would be very seductive. She decided she would enter into an affair with him, enter into an affair with her husband's own brother. And then she proposed this to Herod Antipas. If you will divorce your wife, I will divorce your brother, and we can get married. She's a pretty dark lady. Why would she say this? She was married to a very important man, Herod Philip, but if she was able to be married to Herod Antipas, she would change bloodlines and she would be in the ruling bloodline and become a queen over a quarter of Herod's territory. And so that was her plan. She is a woman hungry for power, hungry for control, and she is a beautiful woman who knows how to seduce and manipulate to achieve her ends. And everything happens the way she planned it. Herod Antipas divorces his wife, so she divorces Herod Philip, and then they choose to marry. Little word of wisdom. Whenever you sin, you never win. Whenever you choose to sin, you will never win. And there were some very serious consequences for Herod Antipas's sin that he thought he would get away with, and he certainly never did. To begin with, when he sent his wife back to daddy, King Eretus, king of the Nabataeans, she was originally given to him to create a marriage alliance between these two countries. But when you send her home to daddy crying, it doesn't go well. You can imagine what King Eretus did. He said there's no more marriage alliance. He raised an army, he attacked Herod, destroyed Herod's army, and almost was able to get to Herod and destroy him if it wasn't for the arrival of the Roman legions, which saved him from certain death. So because of this sin, uh, we have literally a war, and we have thousands of people dying because he would not have some sexual self-control and say, no, I am not going to be interested in another man's wife. Another example of this, from later in life, Herod Philip died. Not the Herod Philip who was Herodias's husband, the common Herod Philip, but the Herod Philip who was the Tetrarch, who was the one who ruled of a quarter of the territory. At that time, Caligula was ruler over Rome. And Caligula decided to give that quarter of a territory to one of Herod Antipas's brothers, Herod Agrippa. Herodias didn't like that because she wanted to be a bigger queen, ruling over even more territory with more power and more control. So you know what she did? She manipulated her husband again. She twisted her husband. She forced her husband, Herod Antipas, to go to Caligula in Rome, in Rome and try and take that territory given to his brother and get it added to him. 
was a very risky move. Uh, you don't necessarily want to go as one of these rulers to Caesar of Rome and tell him he made the wrong choice and you better change. It completely backfired with Herod Antipas thought it would. Herod eventually, at the end of his life, loses all of his power. He is dethroned. Herodias is dethroned. They are sent into exile to the land of Gaul, where they eventually die. So I just want to point out that she is a woman who not only manipulated Herod Antipas to get him, but then she manipulated him to his very end and who is destruction. All because he maintains no sexual self-control and finds an interest in another man's wife, his own brother's wife. Let's get back to John the Baptist. Mark chapter 6, verse 18. For, Herod had been, for John had been saying to Herod, you know, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Most people at this point know that. But very few people have enough courage to actually say that. Because it's completely unlawful. Not only was the divorce unlawful, it was an adulterous relationship, and to add insult to injury, it was actually an incestual relationship because Herodias and Herod Antipas were both related to Herod the Great. And John the Baptist is one of the few people in the day who have enough courage to speak the truth, to say the truth, even if it would cost him dearly, which is what it certainly did. Now, here's a little point of application for us to take from this. John the Baptist is called the greatest man to ever live prior to Jesus. But one of the things that made him great, folks, is his courage to speak the truth, even if it cost him dearly. Now, as, as I looked at this in my own life, I said, what an encouragement and a reminder that as Christians, we have to be men and women with courage as well. Courage to speak the truth, even if it costs us dearly. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. And she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Herodias is a very bitter woman. She has decided in her heart that she is not just content to badmouth John the Baptist, but she wants to kill John the Baptist. Nobody should be able to speak against her. Nobody should be able to challenge what she has done, even though it is legitimate divorce, adultery, and incest. So she wants to have John the Baptist dead but the problem is that Herod Antipas, her own husband, stands in the way. Herod has pleased her in some ways because he's arrested John the Baptist, so he's no longer speaking this truth in public. But Herod Antipas is fascinated by John the Baptist. He goes to hear John the Baptist preaching, even when he is in the dungeon just below him. And I can guarantee you what John the Baptist would have been preaching to him. The same thing he's always been preaching. Herod, repent of your sin. Herod, confess your sin. Turn away from your sin. 
And we know today, through Jesus Christ, when we confess our sin and repent of our sin and turn away from our sin and we call out to Jesus Christ, He forgives us of our sin and He makes us into a completely new person from the inside out. This is essentially the message that John the Baptist is repeatedly giving to Herod Antipas. He is hearing it, but he never responds to it. He heard about repentance, but he never actually followed through on repentance. So close to being saved, but so far. Now let's look at Herod's folly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. I like the way it says this, but an opportunity came. It was an opportunity for Herodias to finally be able to manipulate her husband, Herod Antipas, to do what he, she wanted and get rid of John the Baptist. It was on Herod's birthday. Herod was going to throw a huge party for himself. Note to self, beware of people who throw themselves large parties. That's probably not a good thing to do. You're sort of a little uh, caught up in yourself when you do that. Sometimes you'll hear the Jews never celebrated birthday parties and that Jews detested birthday parties, so we should not celebrate birthday parties today. Uh, that's a little misunderstanding of some historical background. The reason the Jews at this time did not celebrate birthday parties was because the Roman birthday parties were not cake, ice cream, and presents. A Roman birthday party was an excuse to have excessive drinking, sexual misbehavior, and all kinds of gluttonous food. A Roman birthday party was an excuse to get really wild, is really what it was. Herod Antipas, incidentally, was legendary for his over-the-top, out-of-control parties fueled by alcohol, sex, and food. Even at this time, there was an expression that was common among the people, which was, are you having a Herod party? A Herod party was an over-the-top, out-of-control party. So when your name is synonymous with party animal, you know he is way out of control when he has these parties. And he's throwing one for himself on his birthday. His parties were stag parties, which is male-only parties. So if you can put the pieces together, that's lots of alcohol, lots of food, and plenty of sensual entertainment. And his guest list is a list of who's who from the area, all the most powerful men. Now in his stag parties, they would typically have female entertainment in them. That female entertainment would come from a group known as the heteria. They are the professional court dancers and prostitutes. And to be honest, these are sort of, what should we call them, seductive uh, dancers. These are what you would call gentlemen's club kind of dancers, strip dancers. That is the kind of party that he would throw for himself. Except tonight at this party, 
there was a very special featured dancer, not one of the typical heteria. It was going to be Herodias's own daughter who was the main event, the dancer of the night. Josephus tells us her name. Her name was Salome. And she had been taught by her mother the art of seductive dancing. She had been taught by her mother the art of manipulation that way. And that's how things unfold. Mark chapter 6, verse 22. For Herodias' daughter came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Ask whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So Salome, this young woman, dances in front of all these drunken men, and let's just say she was a real cloud pleaser. Herod was so uh, enraptured in her dancing with his lust and drunkenness, he let his mouth slip a little bit, saying, I will give you whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. He could not literally give away half of his kingdom because that was actually given to him by Rome and he had to rule it, but it is actually a cliche at that time, meaning I will give you whatever you want, just ask for it. And this young woman, not sure what to do, runs out the door and runs to her mother. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She's not too sure what to say. So when she runs to her mother, the number one thing on Herodias' list, the one thing she wants in this world is John the Baptist's head. And I think there's enough reasons to believe in the text that Salome wanted his head as well because she doesn't flinch one bit. She doesn't question she completely agrees. She runs back in. She says, I want you to give me his head right now. And then she adds her own little addition. On a dinner platter. Remember, they're in a party. They're serving food. I want you to serve John the Baptist's head. Just a little pause here in the narrative. Herodias and Salome are very beautiful women. They're very seductive women. But at this point, we see that they are very vile and filthy women. Young men, these are the women you want to stay away from. They may look very attractive on the outside, but they're filthy and disgusting on the inside. You want to find a woman whose character matters, because character counts. And obviously, they have absolutely no character, these women. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. The phrase exceedingly sorry translates out a Greek word that is only used one other time in the New Testament. 
It's used to describe the agony that Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. Herod Antipas is agonizing on what he should do because he knows that he has just been manipulated and caught by Herodias through her daughter. The options are murder, his favorite preacher, and the greatest man ever to walk the earth besides Jesus, obviously before Jesus, or to repent of his sin. Confess it in front of his guests and say, hey, I should have never said that. This is wrong. But he chooses to please the crowd rather than to do what is right. He chooses to go ahead and murder John the Baptist rather than to um, repent and confess. Another little point of application. Sometimes we find ourselves walking in John, or, excuse me, in Herod Antipas's footsteps, don't we? Teenagers, have you ever felt that pressure where your friends want you to go along with them? Your friends want you to do something that you know is not the right thing to do and your choices are either to, to say, hey, I'm not going to be involved in that. I don't care if I lose my social popularity. I don't care if I lose, I lose out from you guys. I want to do what's right. Or you go along with the crowd and you go along with the sin. Herod went along with the crowd and went along with the sin. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. So John the Baptist's head was served that night at dinner. Herodias and Salome personally give me the creeps. Very sick women. But at this time in history, just so you know, it was common that if you ordered the execution of somebody, that they would bring you the head to make sure, as a way of proof, rather, that that person had actually died. Historically, we see this take place with Fulvia, who was the wife of Mark Anthony. Um, she ordered the execution of Cicero. And Cicero's head was brought to her to guarantee that he was actually dead. Historically, we know that Fulvia sort of abused the head of Cicero. And I won't get into the details of what she did. Just she abused it. Here's some interesting extra-biblical history. Jerome, who was a church father from 300 AD, he preached on this text. And when he preached on this text, because he was from this time, he said that that is actually what Herodias did as well. That when John the Baptist's head was brought to her, she abused it. And I won't get into the details of what she did. But given her character up to this point, it certainly does not seem out of question for this woman to show no respect to the head one of the greatest men to ever live. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. It says, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 12, it says the same thing, but then it adds, in Matthew's parallel account, they didn't just lay John's body in a tomb, but they went and told Jesus about John's death. And then verse 13 of Matthew says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Jesus was grieving. The death 
of one of the greatest men to ever live, the greatest prophet to ever live. But here's another reason why Jesus was grieving. John's death was simply a preview of his own death. Like John the Baptist, Jesus would do nothing wrong. Like John the Baptist, Jesus would speak the truth. Like John the Baptist, there would be people who would hold a grudge against Jesus. John the Baptist, the grudge was held by Herodias. But it's the Jewish leaders who held a grudge against Jesus. And just like John the Baptist, Jesus would also die a death he didn't deserve. I want to give you two points of application. Number one is this. Herod, by the way, is a vivid illustration of what can happen to someone who is enslaved to sexual sin. This is not the primary point of the text, but it's all written throughout the text. He was enslaved to sexual sin. It caused him to divorce his wife and marry another woman's wife. His enslavement to sexual sin allowed him to be manipulated to the point of killing John the Baptist, and his enslavement to sexual sin actually is what resulted in the end of his own reign. Now, how should he have gotten out of this? Listen to what John the Baptist had simply been telling him the whole time. Herod, confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Call out to God for forgiveness of your sin. It was so close, but he never responded. So it was so far. The other point I want to give you is John is an example of what discipleship may cost us. The reason that John or that Mark puts John the Baptist's story in this spot of the gospel is because Jesus has just sent out his apostles to spread the gospel message. And in Matthew, we see that when he sent them out, he said, just so you know, be prepared because many people will reject this and many people will persecute you. And what we experienced in Nazareth will be what you experience many of the places you go. Now, while Matthew details that, Mark simply shows us an example of what discipleship may cost us. In other words, following Christ and being faithful to God may cost you your life. That's what it cost John the Baptist, and it may cost us that as well. As Jesus says a little bit later in the Gospel of Mark, And calling the crowd to him, he said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that while it looks like in this scene that Herodias finally won. She was able to take John the Baptist's life. But we know the truth, that John the Baptist was welcomed home to heaven, which as Paul says in the book of Philippians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is better by far. So John the Baptist was welcomed home to a much better place. Herod Antipas and Herodias, when they eventually died, they were ultimately in hell, apart from you and every good thing. 
Jesus, we know that as we are faithful and as we speak the truth and as we are faithful disciples to you, there'll be periods of time where we find ourselves persecuted, where we find ourselves suffering, just like John the Baptist, for things that we, in ways we don't even deserve to suffer. I ask that you would help us to be faithful, faithful disciples all the way to the end, no matter what it costs us, even if it costs us our life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.